So, you know, what was impossible like 10 years ago in pesticide analysis is now very easy. We all love chocolate, but on a global scale, how do we ensure the quality from the moment it leaves the farm up until it ends up in the factory for making the chocolate bars? What techniques do you use? How do these people look at the future? Stay tuned to find out more. In the Quality Leaders podcast, I discuss challenges and innovation in quality assurance in manufacturing. What keeps the industry experts awake at night? Where's innovation? What are the technologies behind it? And what role does artificial intelligence play in all this? Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Quality Leaders podcast. Today, we have the guest Geren Huibers, Global Quality Director for Cargill Cocoa and Chocolate. Geren, thank you for joining us and welcome. Thank you. Uh, well, I just usually like to kick off and go straight to some questions. Maybe we start off with a personal question. We're yeah. all about AI at the company. The first thing I'd like to ask, if there is one thing you could have AI to help you with in your personal life to make it easier, what would that be? Oh, that's a very difficult question in my personal life because I've given this a lot of thought about my professional life, but in my personal life, you know what I would really like if there would be an application that would find really good movies and series on Netflix. So mm -hmm. I struggle. I have a subscription to Netflix, to Prime, and it's a big challenge to find something that I like. And my wife has the same issue. So if we would have like an application that would really select the programs, the movies, the series that we like, I think that would be a really great help. I hope the creators or at least the quality directors of Netflix are listening. <laughs> that would yeah. be amazing. Yeah. I also have a Netflix subscription and I actually feel a bit the same way. Yeah. That's a fairly good one to be fair. Yeah. Yeah. yeah absolutely. But to go on maybe towards the more content of your job, to dig a little mm -hmm. bit deeper into that and really to kick off because maybe yeah, you can tell us a little bit more about the biggest challenges in quality assurance about cacao and chocolate. Chocolate and cocoa, so it's all coming from cocoa beans. And cocoa beans grow in a tropical part of the world. So a lot of the cocoa beans come from Ivory Coast in Ghana. Something like 70% of the, the total volume of cocoa comes from Ivory Coast in Ghana. And then there's other countries like Indonesia, Ecuador, Nigeria, and so they're all like these countries around the equator. That's typically the the area where cocoa bees grow. And cocoa bees are a natural product. We say that they grow in farms, but it's not true. A cocoa farm in West Africa is actually a plot of forest where they have cocoa trees. And so I remember the first time that I visited a cocoa farm in Ivory Coast, and we were in the car for about one hour and then we stopped somewhere and there was a small nut track. And then they said, this is the cocoa farm. So I looked around and I just saw a forest. Yeah. So we went yeah. in the forest and there were cocoa trees, but there were also coffee trees. There were bananas, everything, but also cocoa trees. But that is a, a cocoa farm. It's quite extensive and it's the natural product. And that also shows some of the risks that you have in cocoa beans and subsequently in cocoa powder, in chocolate. So you have environmental contaminants. Your contaminants basically is the big issue with cocoa products. So when we talk about environmental contaminants, you have stuff that is related, for example, to the soil. 
cadmium is a famous one. So cadmium is something that you find in areas where there's volcanic activities. So countries like Indonesia, but also Ecuador, those areas where there are volcanoes, you have a relatively high amount of cadmium in the soil. And as a result, that cadmium gets into cocoa beans. Now, there is legislation in Europe, there is legislation in North America, and there are all kinds of guidelines about the maximum level of cadmium which is allowed in cocoa beans. But because it's just there on the soil, there's not so much you can do about that. So cadmium, of course, is a true contaminant. Cadmium is absolutely not healthy. It occurs naturally in those cocoa beans. Now, there are other contaminants which are more environmental related. For example, there's always the risk of fungi growing on cocoa beans. Depends a little bit on the storage conditions. But you can imagine if you store these cocoa beans for some time, there's a little bit of humid air. You can have growth of fungi on the surface of the beans. These fungi can produce mycotoxins. And there's legislation in place in Europe about the maximum amount of protoxin on these cocoa beans. That means that throughout the chain, you need to take care that your storage conditions are correct that there's not too much mold on those. So mycotoxins is another example. Then there is lead. Lead is usually associated with like diesel engines and smoke. And so that is because of transport, because of the equipment that is used when harvesting the cocoa bees, there's the risk of getting lead. There's also legislation. Pox is another example. These are polycyclic carbohydrates and they can be the result of smoke. Now, in some areas where the climate is quite humid, people dry the cocoa beans on fires and they can use wood, but basically they use anything that burns. If that is done in an uncontrolled way, you could have relatively high amounts of bugs on the cocoa beans. So there's quite a, quite a number of, let's say, contaminants and different sources of contaminants uh, that can get on the cocoa beans. And because legislation is stricter and stricter in uh, basically all of the European or North American countries, that is putting more and more restrictions on the cocoa processing and the quality. So that is something which is interesting, but it is also like a big concern. How do we make sure that we harvest and stores and process the cocoa beans in such a way that we keep those contaminants under control. So that, that is something that takes quite a bit of care. From an external perspective, I do have identified several indeed major challenges that are quite impactful. And we yeah. have, first of all, in indeed environmental aspects to take into account. Yeah. I mentioned North America, Europe, so of course legislation would be yeah. different in those two places alone in other continents. Yeah. But then also what I would have as a concern, people would burn them dry, the cacao, by yeah. burning just about anything they can get a hold of. And yeah, yeah, that yeah. perspective, just this morning I was reading an article about sustainability, waste of food, waste due to indeed at the origin where it's yeah. harvested, bad harvesting, bad conditions. I can imagine sometimes if you burn the wrong material, cacao could be lost. Yeah. So I do hear a lot of concerns. Maybe to pin that back or spin that mm -hmm. back to your position, how would a global 
or regional quality leader then? But I think this question relates more to your position as a global leader. Yeah. Very relevant question is how could you standardize such quality assurance topic yeah. for a product that is indeed then shipped globally to the United yeah. States, to Europe, to Asia, yeah. to whatever, because you're dealing with high variables. You mentioned it yourself. You have the climate and you have legislations. A lot of variables. How would you yeah, standardize yeah. that? How would you tackle that? Yeah, I think it all starts with having an effective monitoring system in place. So you need, first of all, you need to understand what the specific risks in the specific areas are. Cocoa beans from Ivory Coast is a different risk profile than cocoa beans, let's say, from Cameroon or from Indonesia because there are different regions with different conditions. So the risk of getting specific contaminants is different. So you need to take that into. So in your monitoring program, you will have maybe different, a different focus for Indonesia relative to Ivory Coast. So, so you need to understand the background. You also need to understand the local supply chain. So where as a company can you have influence? Where are you dependent of external traders? Uh, where is the local government playing a big influence of that? So once you, let's say, identify what the risk contaminants are, you need to have an effective monitoring program in place. And ideally, that monitoring program is executed as early in supply chain as possible. Basically, from the perspective that, you know, then you still have the possibility to do something with the results. A lot of the cocoa beans are actually exported to Europe. So Amsterdam is the biggest cocoa port in the world when a lot of cocoa processing takes place. Once those cocoa beans are in Europe and there is something wrong in terms of contaminants, then basically there's nothing you can do apart from destroy. When you're still in Let's say the countries of origins and the batches are typically smaller because you know it's one cooperation or it's one trade. Then you can still reject that batch, and you don't you yep. not affect like a large volume. So the earlier you detect contaminant issues, the better it is, the easier it is to control because you can still take some actions. And then typically the action is not to use it. And typically, once it's in Europe, you have much larger backward. A lot of different cocoa beans, origins, and batches are combined into, let's say, large large barges. Uh, then it's very difficult to, to do any corrective actions. So the earlier you do this, the better it is. Then what's very important is to, to have ideally one laboratory that performs all of the analysis. For contaminants. As soon as you start working with more than one lab, there are always differences between the results and always difficulties because methods are never exactly the same. Like detection limits, quantification limits are never exactly the same. So if you analyze a batch of beans in lab A, then export it to Europe where maybe the government is going to reanalyze it, you might get a different result. So and in order to, let's say, make that easier, we have to make the strategic choice to just use one laboratory to do all of the contaminant analysis. And that is just for internal consistency. So we always know it's been done in the same way. It's the same equipment. It's the same methods. 
And then uh, finally, of course, understanding local legislation or regional uh, legislation, what is allowed in terms of contaminants, what is not allowed in the regulatory aspect is very important so that you understand exactly where contaminant limits apply. Sometimes limits apply on unprocessed cocoa beans. Sometimes they apply on final products. So that is something which is quite important to do. So there's, a, there's a, quite a lot of aspects that you need to take into account. And sometimes it can be quite surprising. I, I know that a lot of my say, fellow quality directors who work with the U.S. are familiar with the famous Prop 65 legislation in California. Basically what that is, is that there's a labeling requirement for companies that put, that put products on the market. If contaminants are beyond a certain level, they need to label that on the packaging. So it's not that it's not allowed. It's just that they need to put it on the label. In reality, nobody wants to do that. So everybody makes sure that whatever instead use is below those limits. And so it could mean that because we know that some cocoa beans, which are, let's say, from Indonesia, will end up in a product in North America, they need to comply with local state legislation. So that is California state legislation. But the California state legislation can have an effect on the contaminant level of cocoa beans in Indonesia. So it could be effect sometimes a truly global. You know, local legislation can have its effect on a global scale. That will make it challenging, but at yep. the same time, you can take that standard and push it through the entire chain of distribution, production, etc. Yep. Now, though, I, there are some more variables, of course, occurring into my head. Okay, so you have the variables at the origin and yep. local legislations at the origin environmental changes because I imagine the regions around the equator, tropical countries, yeah. weather is not consistent either. You want one lab to do the quality inspection. So I would imagine you'd have to ship samples before yeah. gathering. It's also, yeah. That's also not so easy. You want standard on taste on other yeah. things you can measure. Yeah, exactly. That brings me actually to the next topic. You have many aspects, many parameters to look at and legislation, yeah. taste, whatever not. Yeah. How has technology, new technologies, big data, I'm throwing some buzzwords at you, trigger you, but how has technology in the essence, how has it changed quality assurance over the past 10, 15 years? What do you see also like trends? How do you see that making your role easier, more challenging? Yeah, if you look at, so I'm not specifically looking yet at things like big data, because I think in quality assurance and in quality control in the food industry, we don't see a lot of that yet. So food industry is always a little bit conservative if it comes to, to things like that. Where there's been a tremendous amount of development, of course, is in the analytical chemistry. So if you look at the sensitivities to 10, 20 years ago, so, you know, that the accuracy of those analysis has increased enormously. So, you know, what's impossible like 10 years ago, a pesticide analysis is now very easy. And that is some sort of like self-propelling system when analytical techniques get better and more contaminants can be detected. 
as a result, customers or those companies buying our product are imposing those limits. So simply because it's possible. So in in analytical chemistry, say the development of analytical techniques that has been quite impressive. Result of it is that when you can analyze more at a lower level, it also means that something is going to happen to when you need to take action. So it's becoming more strict. Uh, at the same time, when you look at things like PCR, DNA detection for microbes, we see that a lot of these analyses are now much, much faster. So I've been talking to, for example, we have a large French company that supplies analytical, so microbiological diagnostic tests. They have a PCR platform that can do a salmonella analysis in 24 hours. And, and any lab can do that. But they are working on a PCR version that can give a result in 12 hours. Classical methodology will take you at least three days. If you have positive release of salmonella analysis, it means you have to hold your products for three days before you can ship them. If you can get the same result in 12 hours, you can imagine what that means if, like the financial impact. You don't need big warehouses anymore because you can release your product. So, you know, the effect that something like that as in your work in capital is fantastic. So it's not all negative. Sometimes these really fast PCR methods, it's a big advantage for quality and for positive release. Then I think the last thing to mention is we see a lot more rapid technology, specifically applications of neo-infrared. So we don't infrared for already for a long time to measure moisture, for example. But we're using the same thing to measure fat, for example, in cocoa beans. The interesting thing is that we have all of this equipment is self-friendly calibrated. It's one global network of these equipment. It's all the same equipment. It's all connected. It's centrally calibrated. Whether we do a set analysis or a moisture analysis, let's say in Ivory Coast, in Brazil, or in the Netherlands, it's all the same platform. And that, of course, is the advancements in digitization where we use a lens platform, for example, which is, you know, is the standard for all of the countries where we work so that we have direct access to those data. You know, those are things that were not possible 10 years ago. So there's a lot of technology development, which enables us to do a lot of things quicker, more accurate, more standardized. It's not as fancy as chat GPT. It's, it's far more mundane. But I hear you say that the margin is there. You mentioned it like it's a very traditional industry evolving a little bit slow. That's okay. Yep. But that also means that there is, of course, still a lot of margin to improve. Yep. And at the same time, I hear you indeed say, and I hear you also mentioning you're benefiting from it, that you're already starting to work with central standardization yep. platforms to measure that, that standard to measure it locally, but on global standards. So then indeed you as a global quality manager can, even if it's only like European standard or global standard, nevertheless, assure one standard. Yeah, absolutely. And that is very important um, because it means that you can use the data from other factories directly. You can compare performance of factories because you're measuring to the same standards. In the past, there was always a lot of hearsay. This process, let's say 
in Brazil runs a lot better now that we have, let's say, the tools to really, say, monitor the process performance. We can actually compare. And then sometimes you find that uh, there's like the famous dark horse that nobody knew about, but actually turns out to perform a lot better. Yeah. But nobody noticed. Now, when you start comparing all of your locations with the same set of dashboards, with the same standards, and you have the same real-time data, you can actually identify what is the standard, what is the best practice. And then you get into a very interesting process where you can say, they solved this issue in Brazil. So what do they do differently than these other facilities? So what can we learn from the best performer? And the only way to actually be able to identify the best performer is you have the same standards to which you are measured. And that yeah. means having a global platform, global standards and global dashboards yes, to make the data visible. And once you do that, you can actually identify who is the best performer. That will provide you, of course, that insights, what are best practices, yeah. applying or rolling that out at scale. But that's also getting quite close to, here I am again with my buzzwords, but that's getting quite close to indeed through different sensors, through a global platform, we call it big data. Yeah. So that's yeah. actually not quite so far away for you in this regard. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. So now that I'm talking about not so far away, maybe we can take a little bit, a sneak peek into what is a potential future, future trends. What impact right. do you then see technology having on forecasting, quality assurance? Yeah. I think the big challenge, um, in the food industry, it's actually making the connection between, let's say, your ingredient or incoming goods quality, your process conditions, and the quality of your final product. And then, in fact, even one step beyond that, linking that to consumer preference or consumer liking. So I think that is the big challenge, and that is also where big data I think are going to play a very important role. So can you predict what product will, I say, maximize your consumer liking? What does that product look like? What are the process conditions that I need in order to make that product? Which are the ingredients that I need to make that product? And, and being able to link all of that, I think that is the holy grail of the food industry. Yeah. So that if I want to make this product, which specifically appeals to this fraction of the consumers, what is that recipe? What does the product look like? How do I need to change my process conditions in order to make it? What are critical limits for that process? And then what are the ingredients? What are the critical limits for those ingredients in order to make it? And so... Ideally, what you would like to have is a system where you could say, well, I want to make, let's say, product A. I have a set of ingredients. How should I select the ingredients that I have on stock? Do I need to make a blend? Do I need to adjust my recipe? Do I need to adjust my process conditions in order to make that final product? Because there is lots of up to us to let's say the specific problem. And if you would have a model for your, let's say entire supply chain, in fact, you would be able to say, now I have 
let's say, a batch of cocoa beans, which is not exactly what I wanted to hash. It's a little bit different. So do I need to change my process? Do I need to change my recipe? Do I need to change my ingredients in order to still get to the target? And being able to do that is, that I think is where big data will come in. And it, that is also going to help the industry a lot because a lot of companies are interested in stability of forward. You want the robustness in your process. You want to make sure that the product you make today is exactly the same as what you did last year and what you will do next year. Companies like Heineken are proud of that. The Heineken beer all over the world tastes exactly the same. And the same is true for a lot of brands. If you buy an Oreo cookie, whether you did it in the US or whether you did it in Europe, they are the same. So a lot of companies are interested in that. Maybe not always on a global level, but certainly on a regional level. So consistency in, let's say, quality performance is an important task. And I think big data is going to help us to achieve that by building models, by, let's say, modeling all of the process influences, ingredient influences, and then selecting the optimal conditions to get people. That's what I see. The big challenge for the ship. I have to. There's one thing that I did indeed that came to mind when you told me about Haneke. Mm-hmm. Global quality. Indeed, beer tastes the same wherever in the world you drink it. But then it, it does remind me of, now I have a, the first example that comes to mind is Fanta. I remember my, I'm from Belgium. Yeah. I had a Fanta. But then when I went to Spain, the Fanta was, if I recall correctly, much darker. Uh-huh. Imagine uh-huh. that. Maybe that has to do with tastes. Maybe we had our guessings. Yeah. How would you describe that? Is there regional differences in legislation that you are allowing? Is that preferences of it, the local it, population? It depends very much on basically the policy of the company, whether they like to have like a truly global product. You know, Heineken made that choice. You know, Heineken should taste the same everywhere. That, uh, other power brands that do exactly the same. But then other companies take a more differentiated approach. They say, we will optimize to local taste preferences. And that could be different. There's a really interesting example. If you look at the taste of mustard, and so there's thousands of different kinds of mustards. And they're all different. And they basically reflect the local taste preference. So... If you go to countries like Sweden, for example, or Eastern Europe, you will see that the mustard is much sweeter than if you compare it to the UK, where the mustard is much more acidic. In in the UK, there is a preference for more acidic product. If you go to Eastern Europe, there is a preference for more sweet products. It's the same in ketchup, for example. Polish ketchup is more sweet than English ketchup. So some companies choose to specifically adapt a global preference. I don't know who owns Fanta. It's probably Mexico. So they very well have the strategy that they adapt to local preference. In Spain, people, for whatever reason, prefer a Fanta that is more darkish color than the people in Belgium. They could do that. In Belgium, and maybe even in the Netherlands and maybe in France, it's probably going to be all the state. It also depends on the size of the market, whether it makes sense to do that. 
very true. But then yeah. what also would be important is the consistency, as you say, in quality. Okay, it's Fanta, maybe a little yeah. bit different in taste, different in look, different in feel. But then again, you as a global quality manager, yet again, are responsible for safeguarding all those individual yeah. quality levels. And yeah. then indeed, I do believe, I do see the value of those centrally managed quality platforms, be that on yeah. taste, be that on computer vision, to have the look and feel, to whatever not. Exactly. Maybe the last question. Sure. Yeah, yeah. A dream automation in quality assurance. What would that be if you could pick one? What I think would be really interesting is something like the taste of products. It's really difficult to measure. So we have taste panels to do that. There's also equipment that helps. So we have electronic noses that can, you know, analyze flavor, for example. But taste is more than that. Taste is flavor. It's taste components like acidic, bitter, salt, and it's texture. Yeah. The way that chocolate melts in your mouth actually determines a lot of the taste profile there because some aroma components are only released after some time. And uh, let's say the melting behavior of chocolate in your mouth is really determining how you perceive the quality. Yeah. And so measuring a sensory experience is awfully complicated because in reality, it's not only those elements, it's also the environment that you are in. It's also your expectation. A famous example is that um, when you are on holidays in Italy and you're having dinner and you know you have good food and good company and actually you drink the wine and you think it tastes fantastic. And then when you get home, you buy the same bottle of wine and you say, oh, actually, this is quite awful. The environments and your expectations are equally important in what your taste experience is. That is something which is difficult to standardize. But the other things like flavor, basic taste, mouthfeel, texture. If we would have a tool to measure, that would be my dream model. So it really has, let's say, an automated sensory panel member that would be able to work 24-7, 365 days in a year, always in the same consistent way. That sounds like a major challenge for technology, yet it is. highly valuable. Indeed, yeah, like no. you say, it, it's, the, it's always personal. How do you perceive a taste? Absolutely. So getting a taste consistent today, tomorrow, in 10 yeah. years... Maybe it's not necessary yeah. to have taste consistent for 10 years, but still the principle is, yeah, indeed. That's yeah. the major stretch. I can imagine yeah. name that one, but that's a good yeah. one. Yeah, because interestingly enough, everybody expects that to be the case. If you say buy an Oreo cookie, you have an expectation of that taste. Yeah. And so if it all of a sudden it tastes different, I will give you an interesting anecdote. This is how you can fool people in a sensory way. We did a little experiment years ago. This was like a small sensory introduction. So we had small sweets. You know, these chivalry sweets, they were in the shape of a banana, they were yellow. But actually, you know, artificially, we put the flavor of a strawberry in there. So we gave it to people. We asked people, what do you taste? And they all said banana. So, okay, close your eyes. Taste again. What do you taste? Strawberry. So, you know, what do you expect? 
it is to a large extent determining how you taste things. And so you can be fooled, but to a certain extent, because it is, let's say a company decides we don't have any banana flavor anymore. Let's just put strawberry flavor. Nobody will notice. In the end, people will notice and people will be disappointed. Maybe even on a subconscious level, they understand something is wrong and their liking yeah. will go down. So even without maybe knowing, they do observe that something is not right. Measuring taste is very difficult. Specifically, if you ask the viewers to say something about taste, you get very subjective answers. And it's very difficult to make sense of that because all these environmental factors and expectations say that's really complicated. But people are very good tasters. They may not be able to give words to it, but they do taste it and they do know whether they like it or not. You have to be careful with sensory, even if you don't get complaints, because people will notice. And maybe even on a subconscious level, next time they will not buy your product. And that's the most dangerous ones, of course, the complaints you don't know about. Yeah, exactly. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. Big challenges for you again, but I imagine you never have a boring day. No. Hey, no, no. Uh, <laughs> I had all the questions for today. I think we can conclude this one. Thank you very much for your time today. Much. I thought it was a very inspiring and interesting discussion. So thank you for having me on your podcast. Really very interesting. Thank you. Okay. Have a nice day. Talk Thank you very much. You too. That's it, folks. Hope you liked it. If you did, follow the RoboVision page. Follow my page. Leave us a like, of course, or a comment. If there's anything you'd like me to talk about, quality-related, leave it in the comments and we'll be for sure considering it. Take care.